0: Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Monday, November 20th. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, Associate Editor of the Electronic Intifada, along with my colleagues John Elmer and our Executive Director Ali Abunima. Asa Wood Stanley is traveling today. Uh, We have a very full show for you and a lot of updates from the last few days across Palestine, so please stay tuned. Before we go to our first guest, uh, Ali, let's hear your opening remarks.
1: Hi, Nora. Even the most cursory scan of the news any day, any hour for the last 45 days reveals horrors from Gaza, each of which by itself would once have made global headlines. Today, for example, it is reported that at least 12 people have been killed by Israeli shelling of the Indonesian hospital, the last functioning hospital in northern Gaza. Israel is laying siege to the hospital where once again hundreds of patients, medical staff, and displaced people are trapped, as it has done at other hospitals in recent days. In two separate attacks reported on Saturday in Jabalia refugee camp, Israel bombed two residential buildings, killing 50 and 32 people respectively, according to the UN. We no longer even know the exact death toll, because of the collapse of communications and services in Gaza. But as the UN notes, the last official count as of November 10, 10 days ago, was over 11,000 people killed in Gaza. The human rights group Euromed estimates that the true death toll is closer to 20,000, with thousands of people missing under the rubble with little hope of survival. This would mean that Israel has now exterminated 1% of the population of Gaza in just 40 days. What passes for good news these days is that 28 surviving premature babies from Al Shifa Hospital have arrived in Egypt. Three babies remain at the Emirati Hospital in Gaza. All the surviving babies are fighting serious infections and continue to need health care, according to a World Health Organization official five of the babies had died in previous days due to the cutoff of electricity and fuel by Israel according to the UN and on Sunday the UN reported that in the previous 24 hours Israeli attacks had killed six journalists, bringing to almost 50 the number of Palestinian journalists uh, killed since the launch of Israel's genocide in the West Bank, It's hard to keep up with the daily raids on towns and refugee camps and the mounting toll of death and destruction there. Israel is adept at turning the exceptional, the unthinkable, into the normal. I was struck by the comments of Ibrahim Frehat, an associate professor at the Doha Institute. He said, we started with the Al-Ahli Baptist Hospital. It was bombed. There was an outcry over this and Israel denied it. But then there was another attack and it was received with no reaction from the international community because they got used to it. Now Israel is bombing hospitals and not even giving an explanation, Frihat said. He observed that the same pattern holds with Israel's attacks on schools. He says the first school attack was also received with international condemnation. But then on Saturday, Israel bombed two schools in Northern Gaza, Al-Fakhura, and another one in Tel Frehat Frihat observed, even Israel is not claiming that uh, there are Hamas fighters hiding there and is giving no explanation whatsoever. Israel pushes as far as it thinks it can go, when, and when it receives no reaction, it pushes further. How much further will it go in this genocide? How much further does Israel want to go? Well, here's one indication. In the Jerusalem Post on November 19th, Israel's intelligence minister, Gila Gamliel wrote an op-ed with the upbeat-sounding headline, Victory is an opportunity for Israel in the midst of crisis. This is the same intelligence ministry that authored a secret document which leaked a few weeks ago, planning for the ethnic cleansing of Gaza's population to Egypt under the guise of humanitarian intervention. Now Gamliel is making this proposal in the open. Gamliel writes, instead of funneling money to rebuild Gaza or to the failed UNRWA, the international community can assist in the costs of resettlement, helping the people of Gaza build new lives in their new host countries end quote ethnic cleansing never sounded so friendly and there's another article also published on november 19th in Yedi'ot Ahronat one of israel's leading newspapers it's by Giora Eiland, a senior research associate at the institute for national security studies a retired israeli major general and former head of the Israeli National Security Council. Here's what Ailand writes. The way to win the war faster and at a lower cost for us requires a system collapse on the other side and not the mere killing of more Hamas fighters. The international community warns us of a humanitarian disaster in Gaza and of severe epidemics. We must not shy away from this, as difficult as that may be. After all, severe epidemics in the south of the Gaza Strip will bring victory closer and reduce casualties among IDF soldiers. And no, this is not about cruelty for cruelty's sake, since we don't support the suffering of the other sides as a goal, but as a means, end quote. As you can see, Israeli leaders are capable of rationalizing Literally anything, while at the same time shamelessly describing themselves as the light and the Palestinians they are busy exterminating as the darkness. And they are joined in this by most politicians in the West. If this is not genocide, the word has no meaning. But imagine if you could stop a genocide with a single act. Would you do it? Of course you would. That's what we're all taught to believe that each of us is a good person who, if they had the chance to go back in history and do the one thing that could have stopped the past Holocaust, of course we would do it. I want to read you something that people have been sharing on social media in recent days. Perhaps you have seen it. It's an excerpt from a 2014 book called The Reagan Paradox by Lou Cannon. It recounts a well-known episode during Israel's 1982 invasion of Lebanon and siege of Beirut. Here's what Cannon writes. Reagan, who had considered Israel a trustworthy ally, was disgusted with what was happening in Lebanon. Israel's 10-week siege culminated with its planes bombing West Beirut for 11 consecutive hours on August 12th. At the suggestion of White House Deputy Chief of Staff Michael Diva, Reagan called Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Menachem, this is a holocaust, Reagan said. Mr. President, I think I know what a holocaust is, Begin replied in a sarcastic voice. Reagan refused to give ground, bluntly telling Begin he had to stop the bombing. Twenty minutes later, Begin called back, saying he had ordered Sharon to Ariel Sharon to halt the attacks. Reagan thanked him hung up and said to Deaver, I didn't know I had that kind of power, end quote. I don't want to paint Ronald Reagan as some sort of saint. He certainly wasn't. And it was American betrayals in the days and weeks that followed that would lead to the massacre under Israeli oversight of thousands of Palestinian refugees at the Sabra and Shatila camps by Israeli-backed Lebanese militias. The point is that one man does have the power today to pick up the phone and order Benjamin Netanyahu to stop the bombing, to stop the genocide. That man is, of course, Joe Biden. Everyone knows that without the -the -the round-the-clock airlift from the United States, Israel would run out of bombs to drop on Palestinian children in days or weeks. But that's not who Joe Biden is. And it's not who Joe Biden has ever been. Let's go back again to the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982. Shortly after that war, Menachem Begin met with members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in Washington. When he got back to occupied Jerusalem, Begin told Israeli reporters, quote, a young senator rose and delivered a very impassioned speech I must say that it's been a while since I've heard such a talented speaker, and he actually supported Operation Peace for Galilee, end quote. Of course, Operation Peace for Galilee is the name Israel gave its bloodbath in Lebanon. The young senator that Begin was referring to, Joe Biden, said he would go even further than Israel, that he'd forcefully fend off anyone who sought to invade his country even if that meant killing women or children. I dissociated myself from these remarks, Begin said. I said to him, no, sir, attention must be paid. According to our values, it is forbidden to hurt women and children, even in war. Sometimes there are casualties among the civilian population as well, but it is forbidden to aspire to this. This is a yardstick of human civilization, not to hurt civilians. Of course, Begin was lying. Israel has always murdered men, women, and children without thought and with total impunity. But even for Menachem Begin, the former Irgun terrorist, Biden's pro-Israel extremism was too much to openly associate himself with. Biden hasn't changed, and sadly, nor has the rest of the American ruling class. If anything, their unconditional support for Israel is even more extreme, turbocharged now with Christian Zionist fanaticism. And people are noticing. President Joe Biden's approval rating has declined to the lowest level of his presidency, 40%, as strong majorities of all voters disapprove of his handling of foreign policy and the Israel-Hamas war, according to the latest national NBC News poll. That network reported on Sunday. NBC adds, and I quote, The erosion for Biden is most pronounced among Democrats, a majority of whom believe Israel has gone too far in its military action in Gaza, and among voters aged 18 to 34, with a whopping 70% of them disapproving of of Biden's handling of the war. This poll is a stunner, and it's stunning because of the impact the Israel-Hamas war is having on Biden, says Bill McInturff of Public Opinion Strategies, one of the pollsters that conducted this survey. I don't mention this because I care about Joe Biden's approval rating or how he or his party are going to do in this or that election. I mention it as a reminder of how even here in the United States, the vast majority of people are utterly horrified by what Israel and the Biden administration are doing in Gaza, despite the barrage of propaganda telling the public that the mass extermination of Palestinian children is just Israel exercising its alleged right to self-defense. It is this popular disgust and anger expressed all over the world remains the the main hope for people in Gaza and for us. The one message that all our friends in Gaza keep repeating whenever they can reach us is to stay in the streets, to keep protesting, to keep calling your representatives. Don't take the pressure off. People in Gaza are counting on you. They're counting on all of us together.
0: Thank you so much, Ali. Uh, we are now joined by Ahmed Masoud, an award-winning Palestinian and British writer from Gaza, living in London. Ahmed is the author of the novels Vanished and The Shroudmaker. His family is originally from the Palestinian village of Deir and he grew up in Gaza. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us today on the Electronic Intifada.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, first off... Uh, this is the question that we have to ask. If you could uh, talk about your family in Gaza right now, specifically um, your relatives inside the Jabalia refugee camp, uh, and, and your overall reaction to the last nearly fifty days of this genocide so far.
2: Sure. I mean, I could. I wish I could summarize it in like a very coherent sentence. Every day is a roller coaster of emotions, as you can imagine. My immediate concern is the safety of my family, my siblings, all of them, uh, about eight of them in the Jabalia camp. Um, I've got one sister in the middle of Gaza Strip in the Nusairad area, uh, and my mum as well, who, who is still uh, there in Jabalia camp in, in the north. Um, I spent the entire day today um, on messages with them and with my sister, trying to kind of determine what the situation is and whether they should leave Jabalia camp or not. Um, neither option is, is is any good at all. Um, leaving is not an option. Staying is not an option. Um, as you have described and as the news has been reporting, Israel has been bombing houses indiscriminately um, and taking out entire neighborhoods. Um, so a lot of innocent people are dying on a daily basis. We've stopped counting the death toll. So I'm really, really stressed about that, of course, and about the, 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 the idea that they will be bombed um, on their own uh, in their own home. Yet at the same time, uh, the main issue with leaving is that my mom's health is not very good. She can't walk. Um, she's an elderly woman. Um, she can't walk for long distances. She needs uh, care, medical care. Uh, she needs people to look after her, and it's not very easy to for her to leave. Um, my sister is heavily pregnant, and she can't easily walk either. Um, right, right now, what we know from people who have left and have fled to the south is that you have to walk for at least 10k uh, in order to find a um, a donkey's cart to transport you up to the point where uh, the Israelis have installed checkpoints on Salahaddin Street. This is not possible for my mom. It's practically impossible. She will die walking. Um, and as we know, and the reports have come that there are many, many incidents where um, they, they've they been shooting at people who are fleeing to the, so- the south, uh, not just shooting, but also bombing. If that happens, my mom will die. So all options are incredibly, incredibly tough. And unfortunately, I feel bad for my brother, where all my siblings are staying at the moment, that he has to make that call. He has to make that decision. I've been trying to support him, trying to message him where when I can, but it's, it's, it's quite impossible. And I can't really say much to him in a sense. I can't tell him this is what you should do and th- or, or not, because in the end, they have to make that decision. They know better uh, in, in a way. Um, and... Actually, to make sense that they don't because they don't have any communication either. So he's relying on me for information. I'm trying to give it to him, but I can't, you know, help help him with that decision at all. Um, this is this is not right. This is just this. I can't believe that this is happening. I can't believe that a uh, people are being expelled out of their homes, out of their safe homes. Uh, and B, that this is allowed to happen and C, that actually even the road and, and the passage to, to what is supposed to be a safe place is not even a safe place. And even the safe, the supposedly safe space is not safe either. I mean, this is just insane. It's out of like, I don't know, out of a fictional story or something, something from Lord of the Rings in Moldor or something. This is what it is, really. Um, and I find that uh, unbelievable. And I find that... Yeah, the, the fact that it's continuing to happen, that it is allowed to happen, is just uh, shameful, to be honest with you. Unbelievably shameful to everybody who is allowing it uh, to continue to happen. As for my reaction for the last uh, 44 days or four now, um, obviously it's been a mixture of emotions, of, of sadness to have lost this um beautiful place uh called gaza city the beaches the cafes the people I knew. um i lost some cousins there's been like incredible pain and sadness uh inside me that i can't even begin to articulate and i haven't had time to even grieve about it um i was in gaza in may uh this last may so only six months ago uh sitting on the beach with uh friends and family uh having coffee having shisha and just Kind of discussing the future and hoping that the future will be bright, um, but now it all seems to be disappearing off the map. The entire of Gaza City seems to be disappearing off the map. Um, the house I grew up in uh, got bombed recently. I lost some cousins uh, in there, um, and, and nothing is going to bring that place and the memories that I had. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a time of emotions that I cannot really articulate in any any possible way. And the most difficult thing this time, you know, um, and when I say this time is because as a Palestinian from Gaza living outside, unfortunately, we have lived through this agony several times during several wars uh, on Gaza. Um Apologies, the light it's just uh, went off. Just the kind of I just need to move because it's a, a sensory thing. Just give me one second. Apologies.
1: It's just impossible to imagine what Ahmed is going through, especially unable to help from afar and unable, I mean, but pe- people there yeah. are almost helpless as well. And I'm just trying to put myself in his shoes is just, impossible to do and and you think about that repeated all over gaza yeah yeah
2: yeah apologies about the um uh, the lighting you know um it's just felt like being in gaza in a way somehow um this is just like a glimpse of it to be honest with you um but i think yeah one of the things that i found incredibly difficult this time and i had never experienced emotions like this in my entire life even though i'm used to gaza being attacked several wars um, from 2006, 2008 and nine, 2012, 2014, 2021. Even in this last May, there was another assault on, assault on Gaza. The lack of communication, not being able to pick up the phone and check on your mum and say, are you Okay. That is just an an, an emotion I never thought I would have to to experience, to be honest with you. 48 hours, uh, sometimes 72 hours of nothing. You don't know at the end of it whether your mom will be alive or not and your siblings are alive or not. And that has been incredibly, incredibly painful. There's nothing in the world that I can describe it. And I hope, I really hope, none of the listeners and people watching today will ever, ever have to experience that, that that feeling because you feel so powerless, you feel so angry, you just want to shut down completely. Your system is shutting down completely and you don't know if you're going to reboot at the end of it or not.
1: Ahmed, uh, it's, you know, I, I we've run out of words to express you know, the, the, we'll we'll need to invent new words. It feels like to express some of the grief and horror and outrage and anger we feel. Uh, even those of us, you know, I I'm very fortunate that I got to visit Gaza once, and over the years I've made many friends uh, in Gaza and from Gaza, and we have our colleagues at, uh, who we work with in Gaza. And for us, the worry is, is desperate, and it's hour by hour. You don't know who you're going to hear from. And so for, for, for you who have your mom there and your immediate family, it's just unimaginable. But mm-hmm. I want to ask you, Ahmed, what, what are you hearing from them in Jabalia in terms of the day-to-day situation, in terms of basic things, like food, water, uh, shelter. What are you hearing from them? Clearly, they're in a desperate enough situation that they're thinking of leaving. But if you can just describe any of the specifics that they're telling you, because I think it's so important to get that on the record.
2: Yeah, I mean, the issue here is that they don't know themselves, in in a way, you know. So they kind of like. It's, it's almost going to the market, to the neighborhood, to buy stuff, but they're going blind, in a sense, because they didn't, they, didn't, they don't know what is available and what's not. They don't know if there are supplies or, or not. So my brother tells me that he goes to the market, whatever he finds in there, which is nothing, um, he just gets it and then hopes to make something out of it, in, in a sense. The shops are either closed or have their shelves empty, because nothing has got into the north at all. Um, There are some sort of basic sort of supplies that they've had, like a sack of flour that they've stored, you know, a long time ago, um, some lentils that they've been eating a lot of lentils. Um, uh, but, But really they can't, Go and buy stuff there isn't enough food for them and right now it's getting worse because as i said most of my siblings and my mom and their kids and their families are at his place he has to to feed about 65 people you know so uh, and, and he can't find enough food for all those people in terms of water um they tell me that the water comes in every five days for one hour Um, they have the water, so they have to fill every possible vessel in the house uh, to make sure that they store it for five days. Um, But again, they don't know if it's going to come, what time it's going to come. Are they going to be asleep? Are they going to be awake? Or, you know, how long for? How much can they fill? Um, So it's kind of that darkness that they're living in themselves, that they don't know what is going on, even within their immediate neighborhood. Like I said, a few days ago, um, one of my cousin's house was bombed. Um, we still don't know up until this time. We know one of them was killed, but we don't know the rest of our our cousins. You know, they're, they're close cousins. We don't know how many, like we know one person, but then his brothers and sisters and his kids and all of that. We don't know that yet um, because people are not leaving. They're not leaving their homes. Um, and uh, obviously the news is not reporting. We've stopped reporting the names of the dead. Um, so you don't know. What's going on, so I'm trying to support them with that and kind of send them information as much as possible, kind of keeping an eye on the news, keeping an eye on what people are talking about. I'm connected with friends in there as well, keeping sort of a sort of network of information for them because that is that is important as well um And I I think the the main thing now is that, is there going to be a ceasefire or not? Sometimes they they beg me, just just say, like, uh, can you tell us, is there a ceasefire? And I'm like, I can't really tell you because there isn't. Unfortunately, I would love to, you know. And then they send me sort of news headlines and they say, is this true? There's talk of a humanitarian pause. Is this true? And I'm like, I really, you know, (laughs) let me look, let me check for you. Um, But again, all of that with communication being so bad, um, I got an eSIM for them. Um, which barely works, and they have to go up to the roof to send messages, and the roof is not safe; it's dangerous. Um, so it's it's really, really, really painful um, at the moment. But and again, the other thing that is really that they're talking a lot about is that is this another Nakba or not? You know, are they are they, that's what they're worried about. They're really worried about. That um and the loss of their homes and being ethnically cleansed and becoming refugees yet again. We grew up in a refugee camp. And to actually become refugees again is is is, is a nightmare for them. My niece is um studying to be a doctor at Al Azhar University, which has now been bombed. So she already knows that her future there is, is almost destroyed. Um she's excellent with you know her education, she really wants to become a successful doctor. Um and she's begging me, she's telling me, please please don't don't let uh, my dad, uh, my brother, um, don't let him leave. Like, I want to stay here. I don't want to become a refugee. I don't want to go into a refugee camp, you know, um, in a school with no food, with people I don't know. I would rather stay here in my house. But then how can you make that decision? How can you, like, if if they get bombed uh, in their own home, like... I can't convince my brother to stay, and I can't convince him to leave. So people are really worried about this idea of a new Nakba, which is really what it's looking like at the moment. It's ethnic cleansing. That's what they're doing. They're doing, they're bombing hospitals, schools, infrastructure, you know, government buildings, everything, just so that the north becomes in, inhabitable, in a sense. Um, and it's becoming more and more obvious every every day. You know, Gaza City is a ghost town at the moment. There are a lot of people still there, by the way. I, they're estimated around eight hundred thousand mm. people are still in the north. So, and that's a large number of people who need medical care, who need education, who need infrastructure to, to support them. Um, as you mentioned as well um, in your intro, they're now asking people in the south to 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 evacuate to a, a small area which is called Ma'as which is on the beach which is about one mile long so they want the entire of the Gaza Strip which is 2.3 million people to move to that one mile strip I mean how is that possible how is is this even allowed to happen Um, this is just terrorism uh, and and, and terrorizing people Um, so I think a lot of what my family are thinking about at the moment is do I have food or water yes they're thinking about that there is a sense of community in Jabalia Camp, by the way, that people are coming together. Whoever's got flour, they're baking for the whole street. You know, whoever's got lentils, they're making like big pots and distributing. People have an amazing sense of community and coming together. Um whoever's got water is kind of giving gallons to others, you know. So there is a there's a bit of that. So it is a priority in a sense, but I think the immediate priority really two or three things. One is, is there a ceasefire? Uh, And then the other one is, is this another Nakba or not? We don't want to lose our homes. Um, uh, My brother now is telling me, like, he doesn't want to leave my mom, so he can't leave my mom behind. Um, But yet, if he takes her with him and something happens, he'll be responsible I don't know, would you leave? What, what, what would you decide? And my brain is about to explode today because I've just been sitting here in the office at work in London, kind of working through so many things and trying to think, like, what shall I tell him? And clearly he wants a direction somehow. He wants a, a an advice uh, from his brother who's in London now. And But I feel like if I give him anything, it's going to be the wrong one, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I mean, these are impossible decisions that anyone uh, you know, shouldn't, should not be asked to make. And, and, you know, I can understand, you know, kind of delegating to someone who's not there. Just tell me what I need to do.
1: Um, I I get those yeah. questions from yeah. some of our friends and colleagues in Gaza. They say, they ask me, is there going to be a ceasefire? And, um, All I can say is this is what we're hearing in the news. In fact, over the last uh, couple of days, over the weekend, there were reports that an agreement was reached for a five-day ceasefire and that there were just a few details to to work out. Uh, And then it seems to have evaporated. Whether it will materialize, we don't know. But people are desperate for a break from this. Uh, of course, they want it to stop, but they will accept any kind of break that uh, just allows them, even to catch their breath. It it, it sounds like, Ahmed, uh, you are a Palestinian whose family is in Gaza, and you're in London. Can you describe what uh, that is like for better or for worse? We we've spoken uh, previously to our uh, friend. Um, Ahmed Samak, who is in Dublin now, and he talked about the small community of people from Gaza there and how they support each other while also going through all of this trauma that uh, you also described. At the same time, we're seeing some of the biggest uh, rallies in support of Palestinians anywhere in the world taking place in London. W- what's, what's it like for you?
2: very good question. I mean, I think um, it's been agony, of course, uh, for me. Um, like I said, most of us Palestinians from Gaza who are outside, we we are kind of used to wars on Gaza, in a sense. You know, uh, it's not the first time, unfortunately, or second time, or third time. So... I feel sort of obviously lucky and privileged to be here and to be safe and to be able to use my voice to to speak about the situation and to present, you know, my family's suffering suffering and try to make a difference to influence uh people to think about the human side of things and about us as people and, and, and about our stories as well. Um I think to start with, to be honest with you, I, I didn't speak to anybody. I didn't want to um like engage, especially with media. I think pa- one of the problems why we're here today is because of Western media and the way we, they treated us and the way they presented us and the kind of license they gave to Israel to do what they like. And that's what, why, why we're here. And, and to an extent, it's still kind of the same. Uh, they're not, the Israelis are not questioned, they're not challenged, You know, especially after they've come to Al-Shifa Hospital, they're not held accountable. Um, and if the if government, governments don't do that and the media doesn't, then no, nobody does, to be honest with you. So... I kind of disengaged myself from Western media completely. And up to this point, I boycotted the BBC. They've, they kind of begged me to, to be on, on shows. And I said, no, Uh, I had a play on and one of them bought a ticket to come and actually see my show and uh, cornered me afterwards to actually come and talk on her show. And I said, no, because they were part of the problem. Um, and, but now I think I'm feeling a bit sort of more, um, comfortable with the kind of community support and the network support around us and also seeing so many people going on the streets demonstrating, as you said, in London and the large numbers, you know, calling for, you know, Palestinian rights uh, and for our freedom and, and for a ceasefire. You know, the main thing is a ceasefire. That's what we're asking for. I'm reassured by that. And I think this is a, a message to send to to people who go and demonstrate that actually your voice is very important to us, not just people in Gaza, but also people from Gaza who are outside and Palestinians everywhere because it's sends a strong signal that we're not alone we're not on our own we don't have to hide somewhere like at the beginning of the events as you may remember many many palestinian events were cancelled our voices were being silenced like immediately and i think now we've got a we, we, we regained our voice a little bit um thanks to the support of so many you know uh people who went on the streets and and saw what was happening and what was coming as well um mm-hmm. But also the other thing to mention is that for us, Gaza, like I grew up in Gaza and I moved to London in 2002, but Gaza has always been a point of agony and pain and and sadness in a sense because it's gone through so many wars. Every time I go to Gaza, it takes me about three days to get there, uh, sleeping on checkpoints, going from Cairo to Gaza. Uh, I have a British passport. I'm not allowed to go through any other means apart from the Rafah border because I have the Gaza ID. Uh, It takes three days to to kind of cross. Uh, My dad passed away in February. I missed his funeral for that reason. I couldn't go to to say goodbye to my dad. Um, We've always been suffering silently about Gaza. Um, It's always been a painful thing that we hold within us. Proudly, we hold it proudly, um, yet at the same time, it's just kind of every day that Gaza was under siege, a piece of us was falling off, uh, and I think nobody was noticing that. Um, and I think it's important to remember this in this context. Now those pieces are falling very quickly and very, you know, um, abundantly, in a sense. And and I just want things to to stop now. I want ceasefire. But I also want the whole situation in Gaza and Palestine and the 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 Palestinian rights for freedom to to be um, upheld and to actually get to a settlement where we finish this, we end this once and for all, please, because we can't take this anymore.
1: Ahmed, I'm so sorry to hear about your father and uh, and on top of everything else, not to have been able to go and not to have been able to be there to support your mother and the rest of your family is an additional agony. Um, Ahmed, I I want to show you something. You've probably already seen it because it's gone viral. This is a clip that was posted by uh, Khan, the Israeli national uh, television network, the equivalent of the BBC in Israel and it's a song uh, by Israeli children who are said to come from the uh, so-called Gaza envelope some of the colonial settlements near the Gaza boundary let's take a look at it and then let's get your uh, reaction we're gonna cue it up now and uh, show you a little bit of it I don't think we're gonna look at the whole thing so here we go So it goes on like that for another two minutes or so, which we will spare ourselves. Yeah. What What do you think when you see uh, cute uh, children with angelic voices uh, singing words like that? Uh, is that something you ever expected to see in your life?
2: I was just, I mean, mad. I saw that uh, I think yesterday or so, and I was thinking, like, imagine if these were brown children, you know, from Gaza uh singing the same on the other side just just imagine just put yourself in that in that kind of moment and imagine where it would be reported where it would be shown um this clip wasn't shown on the bbc wasn't shown anywhere on western media um, we saw it on social media because it was captured there just imagine just imagine and put that sort of situation and what they would say about us you know Um, It's a shame. I I felt sorry for those children. I really felt sorry for those children because of the propaganda, because of the indoctrination of, you know, of, of, of that, you know. And then I thought... These are the soldiers that will. These are the kind of kids that will grow one day, maybe become a soldier, soldiers. Because as you know, um, national service in Israel is mandatory. You know, so most most of them are likely to serve in the army. And I thought these are the ones who are probably going to be on the checkpoints. And these are the ones who are probably have to, you know, um, point at an elderly uh, Palestinian man with his walking stick to cross the checkpoint. These are the same kids who later on. We'll look at that old man and probably shoot him or, or, or that pregnant woman and not allow her to get either the care. You know, this, these, these were my thoughts, you know, and I just thought, why? Why? Like, why do you need to do that? You know, why don't you try something else for, for a change? You know, like you've been trying the same approach for a long time. Let's, let's just think about, why don't we just talk about peace for a second? Why don't we talk, talk about, why what if those children were singing to Palestinian children in 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 Gaza, um, uh, apologies about the lights just keeps going off, and there's nothing I can do about it because the switch is really far. Um, so imagine if those kids were just singing for peace and, and a message to children in Gaza, you know, a message of support of some sort of support, you know, or, or whatever it is. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wouldn't it give a different signal? But no, unfortunately, this is the approach. Uh, this is the approach that the Israelis have taken. Uh, this is a, a, an official approach by the Israeli government, not just the children, but also their ministers who, who threatened off a nuclear bomb, um, of their you know religious leaders, of the, their entire government. They, they are they do have a right wing government that nobody is talking about at all, by the way, you know. Um, and I just wish that this wasn't yeah shown at all, to be honest with you, because it hurts a lot uh that a child is singing for our annihilation and and destruction and and, and genocide you know who who teaches a child uh something like this um, so, yeah, it was painful. It was really painful to see. Um, I couldn't finish it, to be honest with you. Like, I just saw half of it, one minute of it or something, and, then, and I just had to stop it because it's, it's impossible to watch, to be honest. Uh, and that was shown on national media, uh, there, 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 as you said, the equivalent of BBC at, uh, in, in, in Israel. Um, I really hope that at some point when this whole thing is over, that somebody will come and think, well, Again, let's try a different approach with Gaza and Palestine. Let's, let's see what happens if we give them all their rights. Let's see what happens if we give them a state. If we open their economy, if they have an airport, if they have, you know, uh, settlements are gone, the wall is, is is removed. Let's see what happens. Let's try that for two or three years and or five years and then see what happens. If it doesn't work, we'll go back. Because you know, clearly they can invade any time. Clearly they can destroy it anytime. Um yeah, that's that's really my hope at the end of this, and I have to hold on to hope because otherwise I have nothing to hold on to.
0: Well, Ahmed Masood, we want to thank you so much for joining us today on the Electronic Intifada live stream. Um, where can people get in touch with you, read your work, um, and uh, and keep in touch?
2: sure I've got a website which I can put in the chat um, uh, wait a second. can they see my chat if I um,
0: uh, no but we can there? put it up on the screen
2: sure I'll just put my website in there and you can post it um, and I'm also on social media of course Instagram and all these things I can put that
0: to um, in here great thank you so much thank you
1: so much Ahmed. we appreciate you it and me. we 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 keep your family and all the uh, families in gaza in our thoughts and in our prayers all the time
2: thank you and keep doing what you're doing it's important to tell the story and, and show the truth as well thanks so much Ahmed.
0: um we are now going to turn to our good friend yusuf al jamal Yusuf is a Palestinian whose family was ethnically cleansed from the town of Akar near Lid in 1948. Uh, Yusuf grew up in Gaza's Nusayrat refugee camp where his family remains uh, and he joins us from Turkey. Yusuf, thank you so much for being back on the live stream with us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, Same question I asked Ahmed, how is your family doing, uh, especially in Nusirat? What is the situation with them right now?
3: Uh, My family is lucky enough because they did not have to um, move south. They live just um, a mile away from the Gaza Valley and they stayed in their home. Um, But at the same time, they have uh, multiple people from Um, The south itself who had to evacuate their houses and leave um, either because of very close bombardment or because their own houses um, were bombed, such as the house of um, my father's cousins where nine people were killed. Um, My family uh, is is lucky because they have flour. They got uh, a sack of flour today. They were very happy that they finally got it um at a very expensive price uh, where aid into Gaza hasn't um got for the past 45 year, uh, 45 days and uh, people have to struggle uh, where Israel bombed the um uh, Peace uh, Mills Company in Der Balah. Um, this is, you know, a myth where Israel is trying to promote and tell people that the South is, is safe, move South from the North. Um, Palestinian poet uh, Musab Abu Toha, according to his wife and brother, tried to move South today and he was arrested by Israeli. Uh, um, forces at one of the checkpoints um, on his way to, to the south. Uh, his child is an American citizen and he was instructed to go to Rafa Crossing in order to be uh, able to leave. Um, but again, he was arrested. There is no safe place in in Gaza and uh, my family is struggling to get clean water. Um, my family is... They they have no idea about what's going uh On around them, even in Nusayarat itself, they get their news from me because there is a complete blackout when I can communicate with them every time. And then I had to make multiple calls to multiple numbers to be able to to speak to them. And this is my daily struggle outside Gaza, uh, being able to reach uh, out to my family just to ask them if they're okay or not. Um, meanwhile, I have to watch the news and I, I update them on what's going on um, in, in nusayrat itself. They're not aware. They hear the bombs. No one is leaving their house because it's very risky and dangerous. And when I had the chance, I update them on what's going on, whose house was bombed, who was killed, etc., etc. Um, but again, compared to many Palestinians in Gaza who were forcibly displaced to the south my family is uh, lucky we lost a total of 10 people so far uh, in this genocide and um, as ahmed uh, said it's a reminder of uh, uh, nakba of 1948 Uh, people are worried that they're going to become refugees again and in their life Um, even my sister who lives in maghazi refugee camp she doesn't know what's going on with my family. And I call her and I update her on my family. Um, people have no uh, means of communication. Uh, sometimes when they can, they text each other, they they call each other. Uh, but this is not the case and, and most of the time. And um, they count on their relatives outside who have some access and they can call from time to time. Um, to, to inform them uh, and even you know being able to sustain your battery like people are back to very basic means of like my brother uses his uh, car to charge a battery that that my family could use to charge their phones and um, soon he will uh, run out of fuel uh, so this is not uh, sustainable and uh, my mom told me today that she's back to um you know washing uh clothes and laundry and like using the most basic uh ways and means uh her hand and um, she's also cooking on fire she, you know people are back to to the 70s and 60s and in, in, in gaza and this is what israel said the israeli army said they will bring gaza back um 50 years back and this is what they did
0: it's uh it's unbearable um i'm so sorry yusuf um can you talk also about your friend uh also uh, a contributor to the electronic intifada raed uh, kadoura and um and what happened to him and his family
3: so yesterday um raed was with his family his extended family his parents his siblings and Um, his wife and children, and um, his wife just gave uh, birth um, two weeks ago. Uh, She uh, had to go uh, caesarean, you know, surgery without uh, anesthesia because of the lack of anesthesia at Gaza's hospitals. Um, And she survived that. She gave birth to um, beautiful uh, twins, two daughters, and um, Israel bombed their house. Everyone in the house, almost everyone in the house, was killed. Twenty-nine people were killed, including Raed, his uh, newly born um, daughters, uh, his his son, and his other daughter. Total of four uh, children. Um, uh, his wife is said to be in a very critical um, situation and injury. Uh, he also Raed lost his parents. I just saw a post on Facebook of Ra'id celebrating his father's uh, uh, 70-year birthday uh, or anniversary. Um, All these lives were were cut short. Ra'id was a young and um, aspiring um, academic. He finished his BA from the uh, Al-Azhar University in uh, gaza he obtained a ba in english language and literature he liked literature and translation he is the co-translator of the prisoner's diaries palestinian voices from the israeli Kulag, which was published in malaysia he co-translated the book with me we spent a lot of time together uh, we were working at the hashem sani sent uh, hashem sani um, library in gaza for almost two years and then I left Gaza to do my MA just a semester before uh, Raed did. Raed later joined me at the same university, University of Malaya uh, in Malaysia, where he also met Ali. He finished his uh, MA there and then he started his PhD at uh, UKM, uh, the National University of Malaysia. Uh, he spent a total of eight years in Malaysia um, working on his postgraduate studies. Once he finished his PhD, um, he went back to Gaza and he kept looking for jobs. He started writing for different websites, including uh, the the Electronic Intifada, but then he couldn't find a job. So uh, he applied to work as a teacher, a job that someone with a BA can do in Kuwait. And he started working there for almost a year. Then he returned back to Gaza, uh, to visit and he stayed there uh, up until when Israel started the uh, most recent genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and then um, his house was bombed and he, he lost his life along with his uh, extended uh, family. Uh, you know, what is happening to the Palestinian people, uh, and academics are part of the Palestinian people Uh, is very tragic in many different ways. Uh, In another country, Raid would be um, an academic with aspiring career. Uh, He's published. He published journal articles, book reviews. You can find him on Google Scholar. Um, But then, you know, the life and the uh, future of this young academic was cut short uh, by an Israeli uh, bombardment that not only ended his his life, but also the life of his extended family. Um, almost every a single one in his extended family was, was killed. Um, it's very tragic. And, uh, you know, today we honor Raed, and many people li- like Ra'id. Uh, we honor 13,300 Palestinians who were counted so far by Palestinians in Gaza as victims of Israel's um, ongoing genocide, uh, let alone thousands of others who are still under the rubble. Uh, I remember Raid very well in in, in Malaysia. We took many trips together. Um, He was a a person with a sense of humor. Uh, He was very kind. He would help young people, like students especially, moving to Malaysia from Gaza. He would take them around and register for them. trying to help them to to start their lives. Uh, He also dedicated some of his time, as I said, to promoting the Palestinian cause. He co-translated The Prisoners' Diaries, uh, a book on Palestinian political prisoners. Um, Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, you know, his life was cut uh, short. And, um, you know, we honor him today because there are multiple people, even the Islamic University and Lazar University, where... Right, did his BA, um, were completely destroyed in Gaza. So Israel's war on Palestinian academics and young intellectuals is part and parcel of this genocide uh, because a lot of these young academics and uh, researchers and young people on social media, they're telling the story to the outside world and Israel is trying to silence them.
1: Uh, Yusuf, you, you mentioned that... Uh... I met uh, Raed in Malaysia, I believe that was in around 2015 or 2016. And I I had come to Kuala Lumpur for a conference, and I think it was at the University of Malaya. Yes. And I remember meeting a group of students from Gaza there, among them Raed. And what I remember most, of course, I remember Raed is a very kind, gentle, friendly person, I remember sitting and uh, we ate together. But what I really remember from all of the uh, young people I met from Gaza is how much uh, you all laughed, how much humor there was, and how much happiness. And happiness not because everything was fine in the world, but happiness because uh, I felt like you – were a group of young people who really uh, wanted to get the best from life, from the, for, for yourselves and for your families, and that you had left your families in Gaza uh, to look for opportunities that would allow you to uh, achieve things in the world and to support them and make them proud of you. And I know that they're proud of you. And uh, Ra'id went back to Gaza to uh, make a future there for himself and his family because he believed in Gaza, he believed in Palestine, and like so many young people and elderly people and newborn babies, um, Israel doesn't care for their lives. But we, we honor Ra'ed as, as much as we honor all of uh all of the people who uh, who Israel has murdered. Yusuf, I want to ask you a, a question, if I may, about a mutual friend of ours, uh, a dear friend, someone we love very much and who's been with us on this uh, podcast, on this live stream, is Rifat al-Ara'ir. Um, Rifat is a teacher. I'm going to ask you to t- talk about him. I'm just going to update people with two things. He wrote uh, an article for us uh, a few days ago that uh, I think we can put up on the screen. I didn't, I don't think we prepared it before, but uh, Tamara will, will be able to find it while I'm talking. Uh, thank you, Tamara. Um, Rifat sent me a uh, an SMS message on Saturday uh, which uh, it's been very very difficult to uh, to to reach him. His he and his family have been displaced several times. He did send me a message on Saturday, uh, saying we are fine and making a joke. Believe it or not, uh, Rifat. Uh, I shared it with you, uh, Yusuf. Um, and he wrote this article for us about. Uh, the how his family left the area of the Rantisi hospital and uh, exposing some of the lies Israel has is told. But Rifat, uh, through everything that he's gone through, including the bombing of his house, uh, including the loss of family members, including being displaced several times, has not stopped writing and has not stopped, I would say, effectively being... Uh, our editor in Gaza, uh, sending us articles from different people, helping them to write articles so that they can ex- express what they're going through, sending articles any way we any way he can, including by um, WhatsApp. Um, I think you'll agree with me that that Rifhat is one of is an extraordinary person, one of many extraordinary people in Gaza. But I just wanted you, because Rifat can't be with us today, uh, just to talk about the work he has done over the years, because we have had the privilege of publishing so many writers from Gaza who have come to us through Rifat, and I, I, I feel like uh, we, should, we should learn a little bit more from someone who knows him better than almost anyone else
3: um Rifat, uh, I met Rifat for the first time at the Islamic University of Gaza. He was my lecturer and I attended uh, some of his classes and he was one of the toughest uh, lecturers I have met in my life. Uh, but I learned a lot of things from him. He was very tough and he was not very generous with uh, grades and marks and uh, but at the same time what i learned uh, in his classes uh, doesn't you know doesn't match anything i learned in in my life uh, for example Rifat introduced uh, me and many other palestinian students in his class to um, malcolm x he taught us to be critical thinkers and uh, he opened uh, you know many um, windows for us to the outside world. Uh, He opened many doors for us. Uh, He connected us with the websites. He uh, trained us to be creative writers. Um, I wrote a short story titled Omar X, uh, which was inspired by Malcolm X, that Rifat um, encouraged me to write. And he published it in in a book called Gaza Writes Back. You can see it in the background, Ali's uh, background. And uh, of course, he encouraged many others. There are like 22 young writers from Gaza who contributed to um, this book that Rifat edited. Uh, He also edited another book called Gaza Unsilenced. And uh, as uh, Ali said, he encouraged, I would say hundreds of people, young people, the majority of young people you see today on social media writing in English are his students. Uh, So he trained an army of writers and bloggers um, to write and to tell the story. Uh, He has always been uh, interested in storytelling. And, um, you know, we even memorize some of his um, sayings. Uh, Palestine is a story away. Um, Palestine is a stone away, he says, and, uh, you know, we're very much inspired by by his work and his encouragement and guidance. Now, many of his students, dozens of them, are PhD holders, uh, teaching at different universities in in, in the world. Uh, Rifat chose to stay in Gaza, and he has been very active, as Ali said, Uh, tweeting and telling the story from Gaza. He refused to move to the south. He's in Gaza City and it's extremely difficult to be in Gaza City these days, especially that Rifat has a family too. He's a father of five and um, he has to care for his family. He has to think about their survival. Um, I also know Rifat as, uh, you know, one of the greatest uh, people with a sense of humor. He always cracks jokes. And we traveled together uh, to to the US in 2014, promoting Gaza rights back. Um, Rifat missed many opportunities uh, because of the siege uh, imposed on Gaza. He he couldn't travel. Um, He also contributed a chapter to Light in Gaza, another book. Um, And many of the people in in, in the book, actually, are his students. Uh, So Rifat is everywhere. Uh, I remember when I first arrived in Malaysia, we happened to be on the same flight from Cairo. Uh, He took me in. I didn't have a place. I didn't think about a place at the time because I was just thinking about leaving Gaza. And it took me five weeks to do so. Rifat took me in, in his place for three weeks until I figure out my accommodation. And uh, as I said, we traveled together. We toured the United States for one month uh, back in 2014, where we met Ali uh, for the first time. And I'm sure Ali used to remember his jokes about the uh, pizzas between um, New York and Chicago and the fight. Uh, We took him to
1: eat uh, deep dish Chicago pizza, and he was... uh uh very uh impressed with it i think he still talks about it today in fact he's still sending me pizza jokes from <laughs> gaza now even as uh, even even though it's so hard to communicate and i hesitate ever to mention pizza myself because it's like well how am i going to talk about pizza in a situation where people don't even have bread uh but he continues to make uh he continues to have this humor and uh mm. i remember very well uh that uh trip uh that that photo there from when we from when we met uh, and i remember we were together in philadelphia also and then again in chicago i didn't realize it was in 2014 it felt more recent but uh i have very very fond memories of of that, and I'm just in awe of all the work Rifat continues to do under these conditions, um, and has been such an incredible resource helping us to inform the world about what's happening in Gaza. I hope we'll have Rifat back uh, on the live stream soon. I hope even more that we'll we'll meet again. But I just yeah. wanted to, while we had you, Yusuf, to uh, to let people know more about this. Uh, this extraordinary person who means so much to all of us,
0: and I know Ahmed Masoud. I brought him back on um, from backstage to uh, to talk also about his friendship with Rifat. Um, Ahmed, uh, you want to chime <laughs> yeah. in? Yeah, well?
2: um, I've known Rifat for a long time. I mean, uh, when I heard you guys talk about him, I was like, "What well, has anything happened to him?" Because please, please don't—you know—he's one of those people that. He is amazing and so important to, to Palestine in general. He's got so much energy, so much creativity, so much uh, influence around uh, his humor, his humanity. It's just incredible. Um, I met him in several locations, uh, the last of which was in Gaza in May, and we were talking about creative stuff we wanted to do with the students, and he was telling me about the students in Gaza you just want to read the textbook and memorize it. You can't memorize a Shakespeare's play. You, know? you have to understand it. You have to do it. <laughs> And he was really angry, and I'm like, It's okay, you know, it's fine, have some tea, it's all right. <laughs> uh, but he's so passionate about it. Um, some of the stuff he did before, uh, on um, like an exhibition on the role of women uh, in Palestinian fiction. I mean, who does that in, in, in Gaza, to be honest with you? He's just always thinking of creative, different ways of presenting and engaging his students. And as Yusuf said, like, kind of thinking outside the box and introducing new, critical, uh, creative thinking. I saw him in malaysia as well when i visited there he was doing his phd um we went out on a ride as well and in london uh, yeah various locations i think mm-hmm. he's i hope that he's able to give us his voice because i think it's really important and very unique and i hope he continues to be well i just messaged him now to say um we're, we're talking about you so i hope you can see it
0: <laughs> yes um and we're gonna try and get rifat Alarir. Back on um, as soon as we can, as soon as there is any let up uh, in this in this uh, just brutal, brutal insanity that we're seeing. Um, well, we're gonna let uh, Ahmed and Yusuf uh, go, and um, we, we you know we just want to thank you so much, uh, Yusuf Al Jamal, for for all of the work that you do and. Um, Please keep us updated on your family, of course. Uh, We'll have you back on very soon. And Ahmed, again, thank you so much. And the same, please keep us updated on your family. We're hoping that everybody stays uh, as safe as as, uh, possible these days. Thank you both.
1: Thank you both. And I hope we'll all meet again in happier
3: times.
0: Yeah. Thank
1: you. Enjoy some Thank
0: you for having us. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This is the Electronic Intifada live stream as we head into our second hour. We we wanted to, of course, um, bring John in to talk, uh, you know, just as a change of pace, um, talk about where the resistance is at right now. Um, We're seeing, of course, uh, interesting developments in the north uh, by Hezbollah in Lebanon against Israeli military installations, um, and as well, we're we're seeing some very interesting Kassam videos coming out and uh, information about how the resistance is um, confronting uh, the Zionist enemy. Um, John, give us uh, give us a, a thumbnail sketch of uh, what you've been tracking.
4: Well, yeah, what you said is right. I mean, there's resistance from the north to the south. Um, in the north, Hezbollah has escalated um, uh, their attacks from the north. Um, the West Bank is, particularly the northern West Bank, is basically locked in daily armed struggle in Tubas, Tolkarim, uh Nablus, Balata, Janine Camp. Um, I think any other time, like we've said before, we would be calling what's happening in the West Bank an intifada. Um, And what we're seeing in Gaza is the defense of Gaza um, from this massive Israeli mechanized invasion um, that's now three weeks old. Um, And we're seeing videos. uh, We saw a bunch of videos released this weekend that showed that the fight is still happening in the outer edges. Uh, Israel hasn't been able to maintain control even over the outer edges in the northwest and the northeast of the Gaza Strip um we saw videos uh this weekend um that's that showed multiple israeli soldiers being killed and abu obeda gave uh his audio message and he told uh israelis that word of their deaths would come to them eventually suggesting that it's um under uh, that Israel's under-reporting their deaths, which is something that um, Hezbollah used to do, release videos and reports saying, this is where your soldiers died, and then waiting for two days till Israel says, uh, basically confirms what we saw. And so Kassam showed that uh, in their videos this weekend, um, and then, sure enough, um, Two days later, uh, Israel admitted the deaths of 10 of their soldiers, eight seriously wounded, um, fighting in northern Gaza. Israel doesn't tell us uh, where or how um, they died in fighting. They've really been underreporting their, they haven't reported a wounded count as we've talked about. Um, and they often leak the deaths out like many days later, which um, sort of confuses which attacks you're looking at um, from the Qassam K- uh, log and which one's the Israelis. Um, because we've seen videos that surely look like um, killed in action. We saw the thermobaric grenade, the fuel grenade be fired on a troop position in Beit Hanun with the soldiers sitting in the window. This weekend we saw a video um, of an Al Ghul sniper rifle hitting an Israeli soldier on foot in Beit Hanun. And then for, uh, for the next uh, you know half, half a minute, minute uh, other soldiers come in to try to, to retrieve the body of the shot soldier, and they're getting shot. So we're seeing in these videos actual Israeli soldiers being killed and injured at a rate that um, the Israelis weren't uh, acknowledging, although they did acknowledge the next day. Um, So, yeah, we've seen um, resistance from the north to the south. We're seeing Abu Obeda said 62 damaged um, or destroyed vehicles. I think damaged um, are a lot of them Um, just in a four day window. Then yesterday they reported um, 25 uh, vehicles hit. And that's because the Israelis have hundreds of armored vehicles inside the Gaza Strip that are being hit. And we can see by these videos that they're still street by street fighting. We're still seeing Israeli, uh, we're still, we're seeing Qassam fighters hitting Israeli armor point blank from behind. um, Which again, just suggests that the Israelis aren't dismounting from their armor. They're not holding any of these neighborhoods. You know, the military term is clearing, um, which is, which has a military term, uh, is a military term that means, that you've removed all resistance fighters from that area. And that's clearly not what's happening. We got reports in the Israeli media this weekend of a complex ambush um, on Israeli troops where 360 degree ambush where, um, you know, dozens of Qassam fighters um, and al Quds fighters, it was one joint operation, um, are coming out and hitting the Israeli armor Um, In a 360 degree ambush and then able to under mortar fire um, like complex combined arms actions where the infantry and anti tank units are hitting the tanks and then the mortar units, the artillery units are coming in and providing cover for them to then withdraw. So these aren't suicide missions. They're not martyrdom missions. They're these fighters hitting complex ambushes and then retreating back to their bases safely to carry out another attack. Um, you know, we're, we're hearing reports from, because the Israelis are allowing some foreign press to embed um, and go in on these tours with them. And The Economist the other day talked about how Uh, He was in with an infantry battalion, which includes tanks and um, engineering units, Um, but that these units aren't allowed to go down, that there's a standing order in the IDF that nobody is allowed to go down into the tunnels. And so essentially when they're finding these tunnels, um, they're basically just shelling and bombing from the air um, to close the entrances. They're not actually... Um, going into the to the tunnels to do what the thing that they promised that they were going to do, which was route you know root out every uh, Kassam fighter in the Gaza Strip, and we can see that map that Tamara just pulled up there. It doesn't look um, all that different from last week. Those pinch marks um, are the bites where they moved in to get the hospitals, um, and a lot of that blue shaded area are. Heavily, fiercely contested territories, the the blue in the center there, um, in the center of Gaza to the east is Juhar al-Dik and Zaytun. Um, there's reports of dozens of uh, ambush um, attacks just in, on that axis um, each day. Um, so that that area is definitely contested area in the northeast. um That's where we see Beit Hanun, and that's where those videos from this weekend were, where they're literally fighting from adjacent buildings. So they don't even control the building beside the building that they're in. And they took multiple casualties um, in Beit Hanun. And then if you look to the east in the top left corner, in the, in the, or sorry, the west, the northwest corner, Beit Lahia, that blue that pushes down to those two encircled hospitals that's the beach, that's not a built-up area. So they're, they're going around the built-up areas. They're not able to control the built-up areas. That bite in the center on the left-hand side, that's the bite that they moved in to take Shifa through the unpopulated um, area of downtown where they blew up the Palestinian Legislative Council that hasn't met since 2006, and they planted a flag on top of it, even though nobody fought for that territory. Up there a little bit is where you see Shifa, where they uh, the Israeli soldiers um, from Flotilla 13, their their best Navy SEALs, um, stormed the hospital and took photographs planting the flag on the roof of, of the largest hospital in Gaza. Those are the military successes that Israel has um, explained to us. They haven't explained any other Um, significant military successes as their their concerted structural attack on hospitals has been taking place. Um, They're not hitting military victories uh, where these hospitals are on the way to that military objective. They're literally, their objective is the hospitals. Um, And there's fierce fighting. Um, uh, In many cases, there's more fighting today than there was the first days of the invasion. And I think in basic uh, guerrilla warfare understanding, that makes sense. Once the Israelis get fixed positions, um, the attacks will come um, even more so than when you're attacking the sharp end of the invasion spear, which doesn't make all that much sense um, for a guerrilla army that's vastly outnumbered. Um, and don't themselves have tanks and airplanes. Although we do, we did see airplanes. We saw Qassam uh, launch this weekend um, one of their suicide drones, their attack drones, which is basically a drone that um, acts like a missile, a kamikaze drone. Um, we saw that be launched today um, or this weekend. We also saw uh, a complex uh, suicide bombing attack in the north, where three bombers went in carrying uh, Yasin shells and Thermobaric shells, as well as suicide vests, and hit an Israeli position uh, in the north that um, we, we haven't got casualty reports, but we saw from the scene, clearly casualties um, from that attack. We also saw videos um, with Palestinian fighters doing what we talked about before, where they literally take the Yassin he- warhead um, that acts like a grenade that has a pin, and we watch them literally walk up to the Israeli tank, put the device in between um, the, the reactive armor and the trophy system that knocks out incoming rounds and slip it by hand right into that space um, below the turret, which is just like incredible courage, (laughs) for one thing. Um, But it's just like a precision guided missile that's put in right in that spot in the tank turret. And again, that's partially um, showing you that the Israelis aren't outside of their tanks because... Palestinians are able to, we're just from these videos, able to see that Palestinians are hitting them with complex ambushes. They're hitting them from behind. They're hitting them from close distances, distances that are close enough um, for the trophy system to be ineffective. Um, And we're seeing, you know, what the Israelis said that they lost 10 percent Um, 10% of their armor is out of service 10 days into the ground operation. They haven't given numbers since then. Um, But that kind of rate of attrition doesn't sound like much until you say, um, you know, there's 700 or 800 um, vehicles. And then you're you're starting to talk about significant numbers just in the the beginning um, of this war. The Israelis haven't even taken up their fixed positions yet, which will surely be hit harder. Um, and even if you use Israeli numbers, which are clearly exaggerated and include massacring civilians, but they're only talking about a few thousand maximum number of fighters killed. And Israeli estimates themselves, um, you know, suggest that there's as many as 40,000 Qassam fighters, particularly when you consider all the national security forces that exist in Gaza themselves. Plus, you have the other factions that number in the tens of thousands. Um, it, there's still a long way to go in this war for Israel to um, to, to make any kind of claims of military success. Um, there haven't been any. We've just seen concerted attacks on hospitals. And I mean, Abu Abeda said that. Well, he said, you know, well, while, while we're fighting... Um, your tanks and causing losses, you're preoccupied attacking civilian infrastructure, you know, talking about the Palestinian Legislative Council, um, and hospitals and civilians, just massacring civilians. There's no military objectives being reached um, that that can be bragged about in any serious way. We see them in Shifa Hospital, raiding Shifa Hospital and being there for more than a week. Um, And their evidence is again, these phone calls, you know, just really thin evidence. Hold, of, a,
1: of, hold, hold on, John. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're going to get to some of that. But first all right. of all, I just want to point out, if we can go back to the map, the The blue areas represent areas the Israelis have entered. And on on paper, which is what we're looking at, that looks like a lot. But I think I just want to emphasize the point I think I heard you making, which is that just because the israelis are in those areas does not mean that they have secure control over them and from the perspective of the resistance they're not going to try to establish you know a traditional front line with trenches and say we're going to hold the israelis here in a guerrilla war you you can't you actually can't stop the large conventional army from invading and entering your territory uh, nor would you try but then what you do is you harass them you ambush them you come back behind them you come up behind their lines and you make it so that they can never relax for even a moment because they never know where the resistance is and some of the videos you talked about which again I, I apologize to our audience that we're not showing them uh, because of the censorship on this platform, where when we have shown them on a previous occasion, our entire episode was deleted afterwards, and we want to keep it up for people to see. But John, you on your on your Twitter account, you do post some of these videos. Is that correct? So people can find them. Maybe we can put John's Twitter account up on the on the scroll at the bottom so that people can find them there. And some of the videos we've seen just in the last few days include uh, the on those occasions, as we've been saying now for a couple of weeks, the Israelis rarely, if ever, dare to get out of their tanks or armored vehicles. But what we saw is that on occasions when they have, they have been targeted very precisely and very lethally by either by Palestinian snipers, marksmen, using high-powered rifles at a distance. And there was one video where an Israeli, at least one Israeli soldier, was clearly killed in, in such a an operation. And others where they have fired these thermobaric grenades that into buildings that destroy an entire room. So that's one thing. But now... I think you're being very unfair to the Israelis, John. And I, I need to push back a little bit because you as said... As usual. Yeah, as usual, John. <laughs> you said that they've achieved nothing. Well, uh, Ophir Gendelman, the Arabic language spokesperson for uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, put out a video. I think also the Israeli army put out the same video or or a, a version of it. That, that we're going to take a look at now, and they're claiming uh, that this is a, a tunnel near Al Shifa Hospital. Now, remember, of course, that they claim that they uh, that, that they claimed that there was this James Bond-like multi-level command bunker under Al Shifa, which, and they did this 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 uh, Im- very imaginative anim- animation of it. Uh, it at the end of October, but let's look at what they say they found. Are we, uh, I think we're able to run that video. Might take a second. Here we go. Yeah. So, what we're seeing here, I'm going to narrate it. But tell okay, me, if can I'm you ro- pause
4: just for one sec? Yeah. Before it goes down the hole. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, did you see the soldiers? If we could go back, Maybe if you you'll see go the back. soldiers, yeah. look to the left and watch the soldiers. Sitting there, so this is tunnel. This is tunnel exploration for the Israelis. So there's four of them there, playing on a joystick, right? So this a is drone.
1: so this is clearly a drone because people don't tend to fly like this. So th- we can see because we're coming in from above like this from the air that this is a drone. And so let's let the video run, and we're and we're going to go down. We're going down this mysterious shaft. We don't know what it is. Of course, Israel say it's a resistance tunnel, but as we know, there's underground infrastructure in Gaza City, just like in any other uh, city. So we've seen uh, manholes and cable shafts and uh, fuel tanks, but this seems to be some kind of shaft going to the bottom. And then, so the drone gets down, it's got a light on it, and then something mysterious is going to happen in a few seconds. Uh when we when we see uh the the drone is looking around, it's flying around, it's looking up the shaft. You know, that seems like it's a spiral staircase or something, not exactly sure. Uh but let's let's keep watching. And then yeah, it's looking around. So far I don't see any uh I don't see noar or Muhammad daif down there don't see uh, too much going on down there, but, you know, keep with it. The suspense is very... Oh, see what happened there? Uh, Tamara, can you go back a few seconds? (laughs) Just a few seconds. All right. Yeah, watch this. Observe. Observe. Oh, the video was edited, and then let's let it run. What happens? Let's keep going. The video quality is now very different it's a sort of a little grainier, but look, suddenly this drone that we saw flying in has grown legs because you can clearly see that this is now a handheld camera uh, and you can see that as the video runs, uh, it's moving from side to side as this drone magically grew legs and started walking through this tunnel. So I think that's and then I think it gets to the end of the tunnel, and they call that a blast door. That's what the Israelis have put on there. But and a firing hole that sounds very scary. We don't know what it is, uh, and we don't know where this video is from. What we can say is that it was that this video tweeted by Offer Gendelman is two pieces of video that have been edited together and in the first one it's very clear that it's taken from a drone which flies and the second part is uh something that has legs whether it's the uh yeti that you have up in canada is that where the yeti lives (laughs) or uh uh perhaps a dog that has been trained to walk on its hind legs or well
4: they have they have dogs they said do. we
1: saw, we did see the fake dog video a, a couple of yeah, weeks ago we, also saw... treated by offer gentleman but this didn't look like a dog a dog seems to me like it would have moved more rapidly but the point is this is this is what they are putting out as their evidence and uh, so isn't that impressive to you, John? Doesn't that look like an underground Disney castle full of uh, Hamas commanders and rockets? were you, were you not yeah I mean the thing
4: that? the thing that I notice is that that's not underneath Shifa, so they they made it sound like there was a command center as if people were all going into Shifa down into this lair, and then all of a sudden they've cut out um on the far corner of the campus um something we we know. The Israelis say that there's 1,300 tunnels. If you dig down in various spots in downtown um, Gaza City, you're presumably going to find a tunnel. I think the thing that's interesting to me, whether that video is fake or not, um, the, the the things that stood out to me were that that's only 10 meters down, and they lost control of whatever that was, whether it was a robot, the whether the drone had the ability to have... Legs that could move because they do have robots that go down into these tunnels. But they do
1: not have flying them. robots that that then sprout legs and walk through them. That they definitely don't have. We, and we haven't you,
4: seen those for sure. We haven't
1: seen those. Uh, <laughs> but it, just to emphasize one point that you you've we we've made previously and you've emphasized, which is that they do not go down the tunnels they they have a standing order not to go down the tunnels. And we saw in the first part of that video, the soldiers sitting there on what looked like a picnic mat, posing for the... Uh, the
4: yeah, playing with a joystick, playing right? Playing with
1: a joystick. So that suggests to me that whatever that tunnel was with the uh, mysterious creature on legs walking through it, it, it was, from what we know, where they haven't even said they've gone down tunnels. Like even the Israeli army as far as I, I've seen in their briefings, have never said, we sent people down a tunnel. Yeah. So this is, again, very, I mean, to me, based on what we know, and based on the fact that Offer Gendelman has lied so often, is another fake. And, and as you say, even if this was a tunnel, it's not under the hospital, and it's not a major command center at least you know anything and American, they're not going they down mean.
4: into it so if that's where they're saying their people are okay so here's the things that i would see in that video we, we, without saying it's fake the things that are in that video that are significant to me that would be significant to all the 1300 tunnels that span 500 kilometers apparently under gaza is that door that they showed with that thick heavy metal door with what they identified as a firing hole that's very much true there's doors all through the tunnel network that are so thick that you have to breach them with significant munitions and they also have firing positions which means like so imagine this view imagine this is you and then you show up on the door they pop open that firing hole and shoot you Or they rig the door so that when you try to blast it, it blasts backwards on top of you and buries you. So the Israelis have to first go down into the tunnel, which they're not doing. But then once they're down in the tunnel, they have this extraordinary task of being in that tiny space that's barely wide enough for one person. Um, And then they have to bring all their munitions down there. And we can see with whatever robot that is that they've sent down there, at the end of this clip, you can see it drops off. The the footage drops off because they lose connection with that device. See, it loses connection, which makes sense because they can't just send their drones uh, uh, an unlimited number of meters down. So when they see that firing hole, Palestinians can defend themselves through that hole And then the Israelis have to figure out how they're going to breach that door, that thick, heavy metal door. And they have to breach that door in such a way that they don't alert the fighters on the other side that they're coming, that they don't blow it up too much, that they blow up everything on top of them. They can't really leave the tunnel to blow up the door because once they do that, they've just cleared a path for the Palestinians to attack them. And at each, um, I mean, we don't know, we haven't been in the tunnels, but um, you can imagine that they have those big, heavy doors uh, very often, that that's a very important part of the defense of the tunnels, is to have those (coughs) thick doors.
1: Which would also uh, make it more complicated, even more complicated, if not impossible, uh, going back to a discussion we had a few weeks ago or what seems like a few weeks ago. It may have been last week, given how time stretches in this situation. But uh, about the idea of flooding or, or flooding the tunnels with gas, that yeah. that it would be very hard, even if those doors aren't airtight, which I assume they're not, it would still be very hard to get um, significant volumes of whatever it is you wanted to pump down there.
4: Uh, and the through. tunnels were built with that in mind, right? So when they're building the tunnel, they're imagining somebody coming down in the tunnel. What happens when they get here? What happens when they get to X, Y, Z place? And they have preparations for each of those. And so this idea that you're going to root out every fighter in Hamas, and this is what you're saying up on the above ground level, where you're massacring tens of thousands of civilians, to actually fight them on the underground level. It's a very, very difficult task. Um, it's possible that that was a dog that we saw, but even sending dogs down, because the dogs need uh, air at some point to, going down. So then you have to put masks on the dogs and then they can't sniff as well. And so the dogs aren't even a good solution. All of your the drone dropping out or whatever that was dropping out gives you a clue about how difficult communications are. They can't use their normal radios. They can't use their normal uh, communication tools, but Kassam can because they have an internally wired system under there. So they can communicate through the tunnels, in the tunnels, and the Israelis can't. Then the Israelis have to get enough people down there and enough explosives down there to explode that thick, heavy door, but not collapse the tunnel on top of themselves or trip a booby trap, um, which is another video that we saw last week. We saw the Israelis tripping a booby trap um, in Beit Hanun that killed four of them. Because the tunnel entrances can be booby trapped and then ultimately when you get down to the final boss, you know, like in the in the battle to 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 get Yahya Sinwar, um the the people in the tunnel have the capacity to just blow the tunnel up as a mass casualty situation and just take every Israeli with them, and so there's a lot of very compelling military reasons why the Israelis are not going down into the tunnels, and why because of that there can be no military success that doesn't that goes beyond killing um, people and and evacuating a hospital and making people. You know, like Ahmed and and Yusuf decide whether they their sick, uh, you know, family members should go on the 10 kilometer um, death march. Those are the only successes that Israel can come up with because the fighters are under the ground in these tunnels that have been built for this fight. That's what they're built for. And the Israelis are up at the top, sitting on the edge of the tunnel, flying I mean, I'll give them that. The the drone is impressive. You could see the drone hit hit the walls and not drop. So it's some kind of uh, it's not a quadcopter. It's not your regular drone or it would have crashed. So they have fancy tools. But once it gets to 10 meters, they lost communication with that. And the Israelis themselves say the tunnels are 65 meters deep. And so it's just, it's like, it's not even close. It's not even like they're almost there. And that's why Ofer Gendelman putting out that video of the dog down there. Like, it's just such a joke when you saw that fake video from a couple weeks ago. And then you compare it to those soldiers, you know, sitting in a circle. Yeah, looking like they're on a picnic mat. But they also had four guys pointing their guns around To make sure that they weren't ambushed because it's it's resource intensive Uh, to carry out these operations around the tunnel you have to bring troops in you have to bring explosives in
1: well it seems that they feel pretty safe around El Shifa hospital because the only people uh, shooting guns around the hospital are the Israeli soldiers themselves but John can we shift to uh, another uh, there's a couple of other things I want to ask you about or, or talk to talk to you about that go back to October 7th. Now, we've talked about October 7th over the weeks. That, Of course, in the U.S. and Western media and, in, of course, Israeli propaganda, they emphasize the atrocity propaganda. They don't talk about the military achievement of of, of the resistance, which overwhelmed the Gaza division took several of its bases and destroyed them captured and killed israeli soldiers including senior officers and so on and also the, the the drone footage that hamas published at the time showed them using drones to destroy to drop bombs on sophisticated israeli surveillance equipment on automated machine gun nests and uh, and uh, and other things destroying tanks dropping Uh, bombs on tanks. And I'm bringing that up because that, I don't know if it was ever really shown in Western media, but it it is, uh, there is this effort to overwhelm us with this atrocity propaganda about that Hamas went out to deliberately butcher as many uh, innocent Israelis as they could. And we were the first English language publication at the electronic intifada to start, uh, Kind of systematically uh, taking that fake narrative apart. I'm going to call it a fake narrative because that was not the nature of the Hamas operation. It was a military operation, in which certainly civilians were killed. That was the first big story we did on uh, now uh, just over a month ago. Uh, but let's start. Let's come. Let's look at a couple of very recent stories, just from the last few days. The first one we're going to look at. Um, is just from Friday, and there's a little video clip uh, in that story, Tamara, uh, that let's try to play, just the clip uh, that is embedded in that um, story of Mark Regev, who is the Israeli, one of the most well-known Israeli government spokespersons, and Mark Regev was speaking to Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC. It was a long interview of about 30 minutes. I watched the whole thing, but that would just play that clip in the, um, uh, in the that's in the embedded tweet there if we can, tomorrow.
3: We had the number at 1,400 casualties and now we've revised that down to 1,200 because we understood that we had overestimated. We made a mistake. There were actually bodies that were so badly burnt. We thought they were ours. In the end, apparently, they were uh, Hamas terrorists. What we're. What we're uh, when with we make a mistake, your, we admit it. Short of- All
1: right. So, now what happened in that video uh, uh, is very interesting, very significant, because <clears throat> remember what we've been told since October 7th is that these monstrous uh, ISIS like Hamas people went in and burned. Netanyahu said that they bound people up and burned them beyond recognition. Never explained how they could have done that with the light weapons they had. No one has said that Hamas was carrying flamethrowers or or napalm or whatever you would use that would be able to burn people to that extent. But just look at what Mark Regev said, because remember, we discussed in a previous uh, live stream how Israel officially reduced its death count of its citizens or its civilians, not civilians, its citizens, so it includes civilians and military, uh, from 1,400, which is the number that the media have been repeating without any question. You know, everyone accepts their number, but they reduced it to 1,200. And what is Mark Regev's explanation for that? He says, "You just heard it—that there were about two hundred bodies that were so badly burned, we thought they were ours. But then, after we did whatever you know uh, testing, they did, they found out they were Hamas fighters. Now, how is it possible for if if?" they were hamas fighters how did they end up being burned beyond recognition nobody is suggesting that the hamas fighters set themselves on fire so it can they can only have been only have been killed by israel and israel knew that but thought that many of them were israeli civilians so it means that it that israel knew that they had indiscriminately indiscriminately fired on uh, hundreds of people without knowing whether they were Israeli civilians or Palestinian fighters. And that is consistent with what we know about the weaponry that was in play. On the one hand, you had the Hamas fighters with AK-47s, or at the most, rocket-propelled grenades, we did see some footage of 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 Hamas fighters carrying, you know, one or two rocket-propelled grenades on their back, but nothing. Tamara, are you able to zoom in on that photo at the at the top of the story that's on the screen, or maybe it's clear enough for people? But this is a photo from Kibbutz uh, berry. and this is a photo of the aftermath. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing that the Palestinian fighters were carrying that could have produced this kind of mass destruction in this kibbutz or the other settlements. This had to have been done with Israeli weapons and tank shells.
4: Yeah, there's especially that footage there. There's absolutely no question. We've seen the weapons that the Palestinians have. Like they have thermobaric grenades. Um, that could burn people, but they wouldn't burn themselves. And they wouldn't, we've seen them, we've seen them on camera. We've seen at this point, I don't even know how many, we've seen 25 or 30 videos of, you know, multiple Yassin warheads being fired and they're not taking down a building into rubble um, like that. No, I mean, it's quite obvious that the Israelis um, don't care about their captives. Like they didn't care about them on October 7th and they still don't care about them today. They're, they're showing drone footage of them sitting outside of where they're claiming that their people are, but they're not going down day after day to go and get them. And we have to remember that on October 7th, that that the Israeli army collapsed so thoroughly um, that their communications were so thoroughly knocked out um, that Palestinians took from Gaza fighters came over and took more land inside Israel than all of the Gaza strip in total territory and we've seen videos from outside the the rave where uh, Palestinian fighters show up on in their um, white pickup truck full of fighters and they're sa- they're like panicking saying like get out of my way get out of my way we're going to run out of gas Like they didn't. Their their operation was so successful that they didn't think they would need as much gas to to travel into the depths of the territory that they traveled into on that day. Israel had to move. We saw footage on that day of Israel moving their fighter jets um, because the Palestinians were getting into range of their main bases to take down their fighter jets. They had no idea what was going on on the ground. They were in complete darkness um because their communication systems were knocked out as part of this complex operation and we know from israeli testimonies that they like some of the the most um lauded heroes on that day um were officers who just drove in their own cars <clears throat> excuse me down to, uh, to down to the area and saw another commander down there and said what's going on and he said i don't know what's going on okay you take this sector i'll take that sector so they didn't have any kind of serious intelligence about what was going on for hours and hours and right. then they dispatched attack helicopters well i want to come to the i want to i want to come
1: back to that uh, john but first i want to come back to the helicopters but uh, f- helicopters but first i want to go to this story the 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 a uh, story that we published uh on um over the weekend, uh, Tamara, that's, yeah, Uh, yes, this story, uh, of course, it was this story that's on the electronic intifada, but it's based on um, a report that appeared in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, uh, over the weekend, on Saturday, I believe it was. Uh, Let me just get to that on my screen so that I can give you the correct quote. So this story, uh, on a Saturday, Haaretz published a story about uh, an Isra- Israeli police uh, investigation of what happened at the supernova rave, where Israel says 364 people were killed on October 7th. And the first thing the Israeli Uh, And then again, this is according to Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper on Saturday. The Israeli investigators concluded that Hamas fighters who crossed the boundary from Gaza that day had no prior knowledge of the music festival held near Kibbutz Ra'im, an Israeli colonial settlement a few kilometers east of Gaza. And now I'm quoting from Haaretz, according to a police source, the investigation also shows that an IDF Combat helicopter that arrived to the scene and fired at terrorists there apparently also hit some festival participants. End of quote. That's the the quote from Haaretz that became a major headline uh, uh, around the world and was taken, I think, correctly as the first official acknowledgement in Israel that the indiscriminate fire by the Israeli military would have ended up killing civilians. The Haaretz report really only contains one sentence about this, and it doesn't give any estimate of how many people might have been killed. It's just that one sentence that that I read you. But now let's go, uh, Tamara, to the Times of Israel story that I just sent you, uh, which came out today in which... The Israeli police are trying to back backtrack from this uh, story. So this this appears, uh, or it's November nineteenth. So it appeared yesterday afternoon, where the police claim they say the Israel police issued a statement reacting to a claim in Haaretz that an IDF helicopter that arrived uh, at the site of the supernova festival near Raim on. October 7th may have killed some Israeli civilians. Uh, it says a police statement says that its investigation focused only and solely on police activity and not any IDF activity and therefore did not provide any indication about the harm of civilians due to aerial activity there. so uh, so that that's now an Israeli denial or an attempt to backtrack from... The uh, from the story which made headlines around the world and which people interpreted as corroboration for many of the things that that have been reported in recent weeks. But now let's get back to combat helicopters, plural, and let's go to the next story that uh, I I sent you, Tamara, uh, which is one that we published, um, and I think we've talked about before. Uh, about a week or so ago on uh, November 11th. And this story was uh, based on um, a report that appeared in uh, in Art Ahronat, the Israeli newspaper, by its military correspondent Yoav Zitun. And uh, Zitun was citing um, an Israeli... uh, Air Force investigation or preliminary investigation uh, into what happened on October 7th, and uh, this is what Zitun said, or part of what Zitun said, uh, that we we did talk about this before, so I won't go through the whole thing again, but basically what Zitun said, and and we have it all quoted in in, uh, the story at the Electronic Indifada, is that... The Israeli part—they sent up two dozen, actually twenty-eight Apache attack helicopters, which were armed with Hellfire missiles and with uh, thirty-millimeter machine gun cannons, where each shell is like a grenade. That's the term that's used in Yoav Zitun's article, and they were firing indiscriminately. and And the term he uses, he says. The helicopters emptied their bellies. I never heard of a helicopter having a belly, but that—that's a very memorable term. And then they would go back and reload and come back. And so, twenty-eight helicopters constantly going, loading up with this heavy ammunition, and um, and firing indiscriminately, according to the Israeli Air Force's own preliminary assessment uh that uh they could not distinguish between the uh, civilians and uh Palestinian fighters and this yoav Zitun article is accompanied by footage released by the IDF uh in mid october which actually shows the helicopters firing on civilian cars uh it's actually the footage at the top of the screen not this Although this little clip was released by the uh, by the Israeli army, but the one right at the top that has the YouTube age restriction, we don't need to show it now, but it's there for people to find. Tamara, if you just show the headline again, people can will be able to find it at the Electronic Intifada. So basically, given the context of everything we know up till now, John, do you find this attempt? by the Israeli police to retract the revelation in Haaretz, do you find that to be credible? John, I think- You're muted, John.
4: Sorry, guys. Um, no, I think that the they're going to do a lot of investigations that are going to show this stuff, because I think it's so obvious that gun you're talking about on the Apache is one of the things that the uh, Israelis asked for more of from the Americans. They're these massive 30 millimeter uh, motor driven cannons that just spray um, these massive munitions at at people Um And that's one of the things that the Israelis wanted the Americans to replace um, for them. No, they're clearly I mean, you can clearly see the difference between what they're shooting and what came across the border, because we have videos of Kassam coming across the border in their pickup trucks. And then we have uh, footage from there, from in that story, from the attack helicopters, clearly hitting like little tiny cars like little Hondas or whatever. Um, that have nothing to do with them. And pe- then you see people getting and out and running from them, um, it, um, it, like six, eight people in a tiny little car. The fighters aren't traveling like that. The fighters actually walked on foot. We've seen lots of videos of it. Um, they walked on foot back to uh, their base. So the thing about the rave, I think, that's important to throw in there, is that the rave didn't... Um, to say that they... The that they didn't plan on hitting the rave, I think makes perfect sense. The rave itself didn't know that it was going to be there in that location, um, on Wednesday, like 48 hours before the Friday rave, they didn't know where the location of the rave itself, um, was going to be. Um, and so, and yeah, and there's also a lot of things was, there. There was a defense, the rave
1: reported, was, yeah. It was uh, just to add to that, John. It was reported in the Israeli media that the rave was scheduled. Remember, the Hamas uh, offensive happened on Saturday. Yeah. And they said that the rave was scheduled for Thursday and Friday. And the decision to extend it to Saturday was a last minute decision just because of popular demand.
4: And it was also initially located at a different location and was moved to that spot on the Wednesday. Um, And so, I mean, I think, I mean, I imagine about the day of the action, you could probably hear the like uh, Israeli trance music happening from there, but there's, it's not, it's clearly not part of their plan, Um, but they land. And that rave is literally between the Gaza Strip and Riyam uh, military base, which houses the Gaza command. So that's right um, so I guess in Israeli terms, they're using um, the ravers as human shields in front of their in front of their military installation um, because uh, that's that's the next target. When the dudes landed in the uh, hang gliders, they weren't trying to land hang gliders in the Nova Trance Music Festival. They were landing hang gliders over the Israeli position that's on the road there outside of the rave. And in that position outside the rave, there's armed security at that rave. And there's also a tank position that you can see at the rave. Um, So these are defended areas that needed to be taken on the way to this military base um, that was the home of the Gaza Division, the, the most important objective of the operation. Um, And the rave is is in between that. And I think that the other thing that just, I think Abdul Jawad said it on the last show, like it doesn't, if the goal was to create civilian massacres, the Qassam Brigades held territory inside Israel for the entire day of Saturday. And in some cases, they held it for multiple days until uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, the Israelis were saying they were still fighting people. If the goal was just to massacre civilians and that was the only objective, um, they had the time and space to do that. And that's not what happened. Even at the rave, that's not what happened. Um, There's tons of footage from the rave of them trying to figure out who's who. And in all fairness, uh, a rave of 18 to 21 year olds uh, in Israel Involves a lot of soldiers. It involves a lot of people that were about to become soldiers, were active duty soldiers um or had just finished their their um, military um so they they themselves, if they were settlers, they had weapons in their cars. a lot of people were running to their cars to get weapons. A lot of testimony from the Nova rave talks about crossfire because there was security guards there that were shooting. Um, and I think the rave signals more of chaos than anything else, because um the numbers of people there, I don't think that Kasam anticipated how many people were gonna be there. And when you look at the sort of like um, meticulous takeover of each of those um objectives that they had, um what you see out front of nova is is a is a collection of many units that had cleared their own objectives and had moved forward and at an attempt to take the base at Riyam. Um, so I think that, um, that, yeah, the rave was in a, an unfortunate position. The Israelis um, panicked and opened fire with uh, helicopter gunships, which the Palestinians expected. They came out, expecting a battle you can see units of Qassam fighters on october 7th that have man pads anti aircraft weaponry and they're constantly looking at the sky even when they're riding their bikes out of gaza which we have from their um helmet cam footage the fighters are constantly looking at the sky as if they're expecting an israeli air attack that never comes the the aerial attack doesn't come until uh, a couple hours later when they're uh, you know, firing randomly at people that they don't know because they don't have people on the ground in the NOVA festival sit, like calling in coordinates on their radios like they normally would. So the the helicopter pilots, and they testified to that, they didn't know what they were shooting at. They thought that they were shooting at uh, 1,500 people that had uh, fled across the border to fight um so the I don't think there's any question that uh, a certain number of Israelis were killed by their own forces I, on that day. And we still
1: don't know. Uh, and this is this is maybe a topic we should take up next time, but we still don't n- know how many Hamas fighters crossed into uh Israel because Hamas hasn't told us and we know the Israeli numbers are unreliable. So uh that's also another uh, you know the Israelis may have thought that there were 1,500 people. Well, Abu Obeda
4: if- said 1,500 people, but he didn't say, he said 1,500 people and 3,000 support troops. So we're okay. not sure which exactly what numbers went in and right. went out. And then we also know that once the wall had been breached in the 20 plus areas, that people from Gaza themselves could cross the border later in that, um, in that day. So that creates a little bit of confusion. But what we're talking about and the story that you're reporting on, this is all happening before 11 a.m. in the morning. The operation starts at 6 in the morning, and that's all before noon. Um, that they're shooting people at this festival, and the people at the festival are talking about how there's there's shooting happening around them, and there's crossfire, and people are trying to figure out where the shooting's coming from. It was a chaotic situation, but if the goal was just to massacre everyone at the festival, um, they Kassam brigades had the had the armaments to do that. That's clearly not wasn't the goal wasn't mass killing. Um, the goal was to take territory hold it, um, and to bring home, um, a certain number of prisoners.
0: John, before we wrap up, um, uh, we should probably have you talk very briefly. Um, (laughs) although it's, there's a lot going on, um, about, uh, significance of Hezbollah's, um, uh, attacks against the Israeli military infrastructure in the North, of occupied Palestine. Um, And, uh, you know, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning about what's happening in the West Bank, um, but also regionally. I mean, uh, Yemen, Yemeni forces are are getting involved. What's the significance of, of what we saw over the weekend?
4: Um, well, has, last weekend, Nasrallah said that there was going to be an increase in the quality and quantity of attacks, as well as the depth of attacks going deeper into Israel, and all of those things happened. We've seen Birkan, um rockets be fired, which can carry um, 300 kilograms of explosives. We saw one of those today hit an Israeli base in the Galilee. Um, Hezbollah's released something like 50 videos of their anti-tank attacks across the border, um, their drone attacks. They've launched uh, suicide drones that Israel had to use their most advanced air defense systems to shoot down. Um, and then in the south, in the very south, um, Ansar Allah, who we know as the Houthis, um, had promised last week. Um, Abdel Malik al-Houthi, the leader of Ansar Allah, um, said that they were going to take Israeli ships transiting the Red Sea. Um, And then yesterday they did that. They uh, boarded by helicopter the Yemeni Navy, uh, boarded by helicopter this. um, It's unclear the provenance of the ship at this point because we know that ships um, fly flags of convenience all the time. Um, But the possibility of what uh, that capability to um, really restrict Israeli um, commercial travel through that really important corridor um, is very significant. We also saw uh, Ansar Allah um, down an MQ-9 Reaper drone, the best drone that the Americans have. That's also the same drone that the Americans were flying over Gaza um, and Ansar Allah shot that down. So they're very much involved in this war from the South as well. And they're, they're not like, we see pictures of Ansar Allah fighters like in sandals or bare feet. Um, They're kind of like guerrilla heroes fighting that way, but they're also, they also control the army now and the state. So they have a a full, like um, fully armed army. They're not guerrillas. They, they controls, they have, Surface-to-air missiles, they have drone swarms. Um, we've seen um, you know them attack uh, Saudi Arabia with drone swarms and put out like go through uh, Saudi air defenses and hit um, Saudi oil installations. The, the Houthi answer Allah, they have capacity to really um, to really hassle Israel and to make um, a southern front, um, a further southern front a factor. And if Hezbollah is really, um, going to continue this escalation in the North, um, the situation gets really, um, dicey, I think for Israel. And also when you add it to the armed struggle in the West Bank, um, tying down armor in the West Bank, tying down American, um, and Israeli and American, uh, naval assets in the South and the Red Sea, um, using their most sophisticated air defenses to deal with Hezbollah drones and, um, and Houthi and Saralah drones. Um, this, this kind of um, harassment and escalation um, for Israel is something that really challenges their ability to act like they have all the time in the world for this operation, that they have months and months um, where their shipping lanes are blocked, uh, where their airports are closed down, where their people are living in bomb shelters. Um, constantly, where 360,000 of their uh, workers are in reserve armies massacring civilians in Gaza. Um, Their economy is not functioning the way it's supposed to. They have more than 100 evacuated villages and towns and cities in the north and the south. So those places aren't generating any uh, GDP for their country. And they're also, they have to be Um, paid by the state to live in these um, evacuation hotels. So um, Ansar Allah, uh, Hezbollah, the uprising in the West Bank, those are all three significant fronts. Uh, The Americans getting hit in Iraq and Syria that we saw, the Americans admitted 50 attacks just the other day. Um, This is a multi-front war besides the defense of Gaza that um, Palestinian resistance has um, really shown just remarkable courage and efficacy using indigenous-made weapons to confront the Israelis, um, you know, most expensive armor.
1: Yeah. And if I'll just add one one uh, quick thing, Nora, uh, is that the images that are circulating this morning that are apparently of this Israeli military base in the north uh, near the border with Lebanon. Uh, show utter devastation mm-hmm. caused by these burkan missiles that Hezbollah apparently used and I think and and they show devastation on a scale far bigger than anything from we've ever seen from any of the rockets fired by the Palestinian resistance is that mm-hmm. correct John
4: yeah, the so, Palestinians have a warhead that could be comparable to that. But they have not in really numbers. Used,
1: yeah, but not in numbers. So my point here is that those images will certainly be concentrating minds in Israel about if this if these missiles were not hitting military bases, but hitting, say, industrial facilities or infrastructure or even towns and cities. But that's maybe something we'll come back to another day.
0: Lots to come back to. Um, unfortunately, um, we are uh, out of time, but but uh, we wanted to just highlight some chats. The chats were again on fire today. Um, some really nice ones for all of our team. Um, there is uh, a, a comment from our good friend Tony Greenstein. Um, giving some important historical context. And Tony has written some great pieces
1: for the Electronic Intifada over the years about uh, these topics. So uh, shout out to Tony for his important work.
0: Absolutely. And then a lot of uh, comments in support of Ahmed Masood and his family Um, and also as well to Yusuf, um, especially uh, his friend and contributor to EI who was killed with his family, Ra'ed Kadoura. Just uh, lots of support, lots of support, lots of new people joining this podcast. Uh, We really appreciate all of these uh, comments and um, all of the support that we're getting. Uh, Please go ahead and like this episode. It helps us get around the YouTube uh, censorship algorithms. Um, And of course, go to our website at electronicintifada.net, sign up, subscribe to our mailing list right at the top. Um, and um, we, uh, yeah, and also check out our updates section right there in red above Netanyahu's head on the front page uh, where you will see a scrolling feed of all of these uh, news reports um, day by day. And uh, as always, I. And Just, you'll be
1: able to read many of the fantastic, we talked earlier about yeah. Rifat and the amazing work he is doing in yeah. encouraging writers from Gaza and supporting them. And you will be able to read many of those articles. And I have to say, I, I'm i not saying this to brag, I genuinely do not <laughs> think there is any other publication um, in the world, at least in the English language, that is pu- that is publishing so much writing yeah. that is coming from Gaza right now. You can only get that at the Electronic Intifada.
0: That's true. So if you appreciate this kind of reporting and the publication, uh, go to our website, um, sign up to keep in touch with us. We will, of course, inform you about our upcoming live streams Um And I just want to once again say our deepest appreciation and gratitude to Tamara Nassar behind the scenes, doing incredible production as well as incredible reporting. Um, And uh, yeah, Tamara, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Ali. Thank you, John. Thank you to all of our viewers and listeners. And we will see you next time. Thanks so much. Thank
1: you. Thanks.